You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear the conversation that I had with doctoral candidate Courtney Simpson about some research that I saw that she published online and reached out and asked her if she'd talk to me about it. The research that I saw published was cool. Well, the title was Calorie Counting and Fitness Tracking Technology Associations with Eating Disorder Symptomology. And I thought that that was interesting. So I reached out to her and asked if she'd have a chat and she said yes. So we do have a chat about that, but we do get onto some rather more interesting things in my opinion about the field of eating disorder treatment um, we talk and not just eating disorder treatment actually Courtney has done and is doing a great deal of work in um, obesity and working with people with obesity and so we sort of talk about those two ends of the spectrum and um, how we can learn and how we can better assimilate treatment and understand people and particularly how we can move away from things like BNI. So really very interesting conversation, at least I think that we had. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Courtney. She was just somebody who was right up my street in her frankness, uh, a refreshing amount of openness and a refreshing amount of cynicism, which I always like. So here's the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. The first thing I asked Courtney was to tell us a little bit about herself. Here's Courtney. So I am a doctoral candidate in counseling psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, I'm getting ready to start my fifth year there. Um, And so I've been doing a lot of research and clinical work, um, mostly pertaining to eating and weight-related disorders. So my research has focused so far um, um, a lot on kind of sociocultural factors that contribute to the development of eating disorders. And so that's what I've done a lot of a lot of my research on to date. But I'm really I'm also really interested in the prevention of eating and other weight related disor- disorders, which is my dissertation is focusing on and kind of where I hope to go in the future with my research. And so that would be the prevention of things that act as a trigger, because, you know, if we assume that eating disorders are genetic, you can't prevent the genes, but you can prevent the things that then trigger those genes. Very much so. Very much so. Definitely. hundred percent. Yeah. And so I was interested because you were looking at fitness trackers and Mm -hmm. I, um, I think it was a very underspoken about element of eating disorder um, symptomology that is being obsessive about exercise. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm somebody that used to exercise excessively. And most of the people who I work, work with or talk with to who have anorexia also tend to, like I'd say about, I think it's supposed to be about 80% of people with anorexia exercise excessively so that's why it piqued my interest um so yeah I'd love you to tell us a little bit about what you did yeah so this study was actually it was really preliminary um honestly all I really did in in this study um I just asked a simple question just a yes or no question um whether I well two yes or no questions one was um whether people currently use 
calorie tracking applications like MyFitnessPal or Lose It. And then another question was um, whether they used fitness tracking devices like a Fitbit um, or Garmin or something of that nature. So that was really all that I asked in this study. It was, it's very, very preliminary um, and a lot more data is needed to be collected. And I'm actually working on another study collecting more data on this right now. But um, so I found some really preliminary results demonstrating that there are some relations between use of calorie tracking and fitness tracking like you were talking about and eating pathology. Um, I think what's really interesting is that I found um, that fitness tracking devices actually uniquely accounted for eating disorder symptoms um, over and above known predictors such as um, gender, binge eating, and purging. And so I think that really speaks to kind of what you're talking about um, over about the idea that fitness tracking is, we know that, or this demonstrates that there is some relation going on there. You know, we don't know necessarily which way it goes. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg thing. We don't know now whether people with disordered eating pathology use fitness trackers or whether people use fitness trackers and then develop disordered eating pathology. So not quite sure which way it is yet, but there, it, there does seem to be some, tor- some type of relation there. I think it works both ways because if the energy deficit is what triggers the eating disorder, then somebody could, I have known people who have not gone on a diet, but they have mm-hmm. started using a gym or been given a fitness tracker for Christmas, started mm-hmm. using it, and that has then sparked the energy deficit, which has then mm-hmm. triggered their eating disorder. I've also yeah. known, known people who have had their eating disorder triggered by something else and then mm-hmm. wanted to get a fitness tracker because they've become obsessive about exercise and, and tracking calories and things. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it definitely could go both ways. Um, and I think, again, we need a lot more research to really figure out um, how exactly this manifests in in each way and what type of people might be more prone then to develop an eating disorder after starting to use a fitness tracker um, and really what we can do to to either prevent the use of fitness trackers in that in the, that population, which is highly unlikely, but um, at least maybe put some type of warning or yeah. more cautions around it. it. It's interesting because I think that most people who have been in, had an eating disorder for like sort of a long time, like we, we start off using that sort of thing and then it just gets so obsessive that we sort of right. actually ditch it ourselves. But it, right. it can take people years to actually ditch it. And, you know, right. it's, it was the kind of thing that even before I'd weight restored, I'd come around to just like, I can't go near that sort of pink thing with a barge pole. It's, mm-hmm. But then I think what I'm quite interested in is, so the recent genetic research on anorexia. And mm-hmm. um, so I interviewed um, Dr. Cynthia Bulick uh, a couple yeah. of weeks ago and spoke about that. And she was talking about the... Um, links of the genetics of anorexia and how close they were to OCD. And so mm-hmm, I think that definitely. really that plays into it big time. If you have something on your wrist that is telling mm-hmm. you how many steps you've taken or how many calories you've eaten, oh, it's just awful for the whole OCD thing. Exactly, exactly. And I think that we know that people with anorexia specifically do tend to be more obsessive and perfectionistic when it comes to numbers. And so, especially when we have something that we can wear on our wrist or have something on our phone that is constantly reminding us of these numbers, you know, it it really feeds into this disorder and um, is a great way for then people with these disorders to 
quantify their worth. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always the person who's convincing people with um, anorexia to, that they have to stop exercise and they have to throw yeah. out Fitbit and things. And it's always so interesting. There's a lot of resistance at first and people are so resistant to throwing mm -hmm. away the fitness tracker. But when they actually do this huge feeling of relief, <laughs> like, and then we get very protective. Oh, I'm never going to have one of those again. I'm not <laughs> doing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because there's so there's so much reliance on that. It's kind of that safety net almost, and it gives them it feeds into their disorder really. Um, and so I think separating, taking that away, is a really important part of of the path to recovery mm -hmm. in order to separate yourself from a number that really doesn't mean that much. No, it doesn't mean anything. Not any, not anything of any significance. Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and and it, it takes us. No, sorry. Go on. Oh, I was just going to say, and it completely takes us away from listening to our bodies and, you know, moving our bodies because it feels good and feeding our bodies because for nourishment. And so I think it really, dis it, it's kind of a step of disembodiment and not really paying attention to what's actually going on with ourselves. I think that that could be true whether somebody has an eating disorder or not. So for, mm -hmm. you know, for anybody, I think if they're just feeding themselves and exercising themselves because there's something bleeping on their wrist told them to do that, then that is a, that is a sort of a dis disconnect of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, but we can't really argue that fitness trackers are detrimental to the general population. No, not at all. It's a bit like the conversation around um, calorie labeling on mm -hmm. foods. It's right. It may be null to the general population. I don't think there's that much evidence to even show that it's particularly helpful or making people from the general population make sort of quote-unquote healthier food choices. I don't think there's any right. much evidence for that. But at the same time, you can't really say that it hurts the general population to have that, mm -hmm. that information up there. Right. But it does hurt the eating disorder population. Right. Um, right. And so it's just that it's... it's um, it's difficult to even know what to do with the information, I think, is, mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. So we know that these things are, are detrimental to people with eating disorders, but then how the hell do we remove them from all right. environments? Or do we just focus on sending the message to people with eating disorders? Right. Do, you know, avoid these things. Don't do right. these things. Yeah, and I think that's really tricky because I think you make a good point for a lot of people and, you know... Um, for, for the normal person and people with, you know, trying to lose weight, excess weight, you know, it might be, might be beneficial. And there is research to support that, you know, the use of calorie counting and fitness trackers in um, people with larger bodies that are trying to lose weight has been beneficial. And, um, and so I think it's hard because then, because then what do we do? So I think, you know, I think the, the biggest things is that I think it's important for treatment providers specifically um, to really be aware that these, there can be some relation between using these fitness trackers or calorie trackers and disordered eating symptoms. So asking about these, this kind of new technology when we're assessing for eating disorders and looking for eating disorders and, um, you know, eating disorders are very sneaky and behaviors can, um, you know, cl clinicians have to ask the right questions in order to know what's going on. And mm -hmm. so I think this is another, another question that's emerging with the new technology that we have that clinicians and treatment providers need to be aware of and really need to take into account when they're thinking about treatment planning and looking for whether symptoms are in remission or not. Yes. Yes. And to play, to play back and maybe go back a little bit on what I was saying about our fitness trackers detrimental for the general population. I mean, you could then 
say that there's been studies that show that it helps people who are trying to lose weight to lose weight. But then mm -hmm. if we look at, well, why is that trying to, person trying to lose weight? And did they need to lose weight? And is that a good idea anyway? And has that made that person any happier? <laughs> you, you know, there's not any studies that sort of look into that. That gets into a bigger social problem, right? Oh, that gets into a much bigger social problem that I have lots of opinions on. Yes. I'd love to yes, hear yes. them. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm, so I'm in, I'm in a doctoral program right now and, um, you know, the, I've always been really interested in eating disorders and part of my advisor's work, what my lab does, um, is also look, do obesity interventions. And, um, so I've played a big part in, in leading those obesity interventions. And I think recently I feel like I've been in a little bit of an ethical dilemma when I'm instructing people on kind of ways to lose weight and encouraging them to um, count their calories and use, you know, my fitness pal or fitness trackers to really measure their, their outcomes. And, um, you know, I think it's hard because I do feel like a lot of times and, and not with all the patients that I've worked with, but there are specific individuals that I've worked with on the, you know, obesity spectrum where I do see them becoming very obsessive with calorie tracking. And I am very worried. And I think it's hard because, you know, we're really prescribing for one group of individuals what is very worrisome in another group of individuals. And so um, recently I've become really interested in this overlap between, you know, all, all disorders on all the weight spectrum and how can we really what's the best approach to just getting people to have a healthy relationship with food and loving their body moving their body in a way that feels good, listening to their body and feeding their body in a way that's nourishing. And, you know, I think that's kind of what I hope to do with my dissertation. But um, I think that there's, we need a lot, our, our, the fields of obesity and eating disorders really need to come together more. And I, I hope that's what we're moving towards. Um, but yeah, that's something that I've been struggling with personally is just, um, just what I see when I work with people of larger bodies and, and being really worried, but also no, you know, feeling also being in a program where, you know, I'm still a student and I don't have as much say maybe as I want to in terms of what I'm allowed to do and speak my opinion. So, yeah. um, I'm I, yeah, it's, I feel like I'm a bit in, a, in an interesting point right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, um, I emphasize somewhat because, well, not not quite the same at all. But when when I was very sick, I exercised excessively, and then I trained, became a personal trainer and nutritionist mm -hmm. who helped other people lose weight. And so mm -hmm. I worked in gyms, and I was very ill myself, very underweight. You know, walking anorexia, although nobody seemed to care. But but you know, my then then I was helping other people lose weight as well, and. Mm -hmm. e even then, when I was so into oh, you know, just healthy eating and orthorexic eating and, you know, trying to get mm -hmm. other people to do the same. And then just realizing that sort of six months into my career as a personal trainer, that it kind of wasn't working for people. <laughs> I was just making people miserable. <laughs> and that's and that's the like, that's, I think, what's frustrating when you look at like the behavioral weight loss literature is that is that diets don't work. They just don't work. You know, giving people a calorie count, telling them to eat 
you know, I don't, I don't want to say numbers, but a little, a small amount of calories a day. I mean, it's not sustainable. It's so not sustainable. And seeing, you know, I, the intervention that I've led the past couple of months, I've been working with teen girls and it's so, it's, it's very, it's very worrisome to see them at times, you know, already be telling them that getting them obsessed with these numbers and exercise and, um, and yeah, I just, I think that there just, there's a different, there needs to be a different approach mm-hmm. to getting people to, you know, a healthy body weight, no matter their BM, a healthy, a healthy, just weight, a healthy peace of mind, um, an improved quality of life. That's, you know, not really related to the number on the scale, but yes. more about how you feel in your body. And I yes. think that's really what we need to go. This emphasis on BMI is just a bunch of bull crap and I want to go away from it so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. again, I think it's, but then it's, it's so hard when we think about grant funding, um, you know, we want to measure outcomes based on, or, you know, grants want, you know, really objective outcomes mm-hmm. and BMI is, you know, measurable and can be specific and what have Never you. Never mind that person's state of mind <laughs> or personal happiness. Exactly. And the thing about a lot of like behavioral weight loss interventions, specifically in the literature, is that they don't, me- a lot of times they don't measure, you know, eating disorder behaviors or eating disorder cognitions. And sometimes rarely they'll even measure like quality of life, what you were talking yeah. about. And so I think, um, you know, in really order to capital, you know, understand how well these weight loss interventions are working, we also need to be worried about all ends of the spectrum. So Yes. And it's like, oh, you know, you're a BMI of twenty, but suicidal. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And but I feel um, I actually sort of um, ten years later after I after I'd recovered, I um I any client that I'd had in that time when I was a personal trainer that I still had contact for, I emailed and said and apologize and said, I was sick. I was really sick. And the advice I yeah. gave me was wrong and eat food yeah. and be happy. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's, it just shows that mindset is a, is a sick mindset in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what you're talking about a lot, the, the two sort of the, the medium, the happy middle in there is more of a health at every size approach. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Health at every size, like intuitive eating. I mean, I, I'm a huge proponent for, um, for those kind of those approaches. And I think that they really, yeah, capitalize more so on just how you feel in your body and Mm -hmm. listening to your body. And I think that that's, and I think really if you're in tune with your body and able to listen to your body, like you're going to have a better quality of life because you're not obsessing over the next exercise class that you're going to get to, or how many calories you're going to burn or how many calories it is you're going to eat and something. And, oh, which is just so prevalent in society, whether or not somebody has an eating disorder or not. I mean, the amount of times that I just hear my friends talk about those types of things, even though they know the type of research that I'm into, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's fascinating. I know. Um, <laughs> and upsetting I, at the same time. It is. Um, and I, I agree with intuitive eating for the general population as for the anorexia population. I don't though, just due to our lack of hunger signals, but, um, right. For, for everybody, I think, it just it feels like hitting your head against the wall when you think why isn't health at every size just what everybody does? Yeah, well, <laughs> I think and I think that has a lot to do with um, with just kind of the scientific community. To be completely honest, and just like maybe the idea, like we still are in such a medical model of obesity as a disease. You know, obesity is a disease and bad. And I think so. Actually, when I um, when I was even thinking about my dissertation, like two years ago, my first 
my first idea was I wanted to take a health at every size approach and try and design an intervention to, you know, promote body acceptance on the whole weight spectrum. And I brought that to my advisor at the time. And she was like, you know, I think that's a great idea, but you can't, you can't use that term because that's, you know, that will not get you, that's not scientifically, um, you know, rigorous or, you know, people are going to talk down on you. Like that's, that's not okay. So I think that's really interesting to think about is yes, I think that's a really important approach, but I think that like in a scientific community, you know, BMI is still bad or BMI is still like a really good marker, a really good in quotes marker of health. And I think we have a lot of work that around um, that needs to be done around just kind of really elucidating um, how BMI really isn't always the best predictor of a lot of different health outcomes. So it's true for so many, I think more in the field of mental health than than physical Mm -hmm. health, but true for so much that I feel that in a sense we are getting in our own way in that we can't get past sort of like, this is the established model. Everybody has to do this and other ideas and other models are coming through. So Mm -hmm. hugely, for example, in, um, the field of anorexia recovery, I'm a huge proponent for peer support. I think that it's mm-hmm. often and sometimes for some people more effective yeah. than any other form of support. Um, mm-hmm. But but yet it's sort of, it's not in the medical model. It's like, it's just oh, not, right. it's not supported and it, it's very difficult to, it's just brushed off, I think, a lot of the time. It's just like, oh, it's right. just people messing around. Uh, right. And it can be a really effective tool and effective mm-hmm. because it reduces the cost so dramatically of treatment. Mm-hmm. It's you know, definitely peer support is often free. Yeah. And so, but you know, it's the same with, with BMI. It's again, the feel we're getting in our own way because mm-hmm. we can't sort of get past the, Oh, we should be using BMI as an indicator of health. Even despite all the evidence that we have to the contrary, it's still being used as an indicator of health. It's like, how do we move these things faster? How do we actually, right. or even if, some people want to sit with BMI and that's fine. What can we do to remove obstacles for people who want to develop other models and mm-hmm. try yeah. try different ways? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't definitely don't have the answers, but I think that hopefully that's where we're going. I really, really hope that's where we're going. Um, Groundswell movement, I think. <laughs> Just yeah yeah i mean i do see it sort of you see it online on all of the eating disorder parent support forums even all the eating disorder um you know patients of peer support mm-hmm. people just everybody who's either had got an eating disorder in recovery themselves we all push bmi away and just like that's right. rubbish parents are people who are in eating disorder recovery and they've got a child to a bmi of 19 and realize mm-hmm. that that child is still really sick and they're probably going to go right. up to 23 before they actually start to show signs of getting better. And right. that's where they need to be, a shoving BMI aside and telling their therapists and doctors, no, right. <laughs> we can't stop at BMI 19 because I know right. that this is not healthy to my child. So I do think it's coming from the ground up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you're completely right because I think, you know, the scientific community often is a couple years behind because it takes so long to publish and all of those things. Um and yeah, I think maybe coming from the ground up is, is just kind of the best approach. I mean, yeah, it is hard. Like I, I had a patient that I've been working with recently, um, or was working with, and she was at a BMI of around like 19.1 or something like that. And, you know, her, her mom was like, oh yeah, she's, you know, she's in recovery. Like she's great. She's weight stable. And I'm like, girl, this, she's got some real bad cognitions there. Like 
I'm pretty sure that we <laughs> we still need to be focusing on this. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think that I think yeah, you're right. We just we just can't go by numbers so yeah. often. Like it is. There's so much of the mindset that plays into an eating disorder that so um, on some levels can be can be even more important. At, at some points I guess but you're right Not... it's so difficult though because at least with BMI it's like a nice neat that gets right. to that BMI when exactly because people... one question I probably get 50 times a day via email that's an exaggeration but a few times a day via email <laughs> is when will I know that I'm you know when when can I say when am I weight restored when will I know I'm weight restored and I'm, I sort of say well you gain weight you go into the healthy weight range and then you keep mm-hmm. going until your mental state gets better. Exactly. And that's, exactly. that's not a number. <laughs> no, no. And, that's, um, and it's, I think that's why it's so hard because that BMI like provides us with that, you know, that really objective data. Um, and it's like, okay, they, they're either at this number or not. And we can categorize people really easily based on that number. And um, it, it works in quotes to be able to give recommendations. And so, I think it's hard. Like how, how then do we, do we capture what then recovery looks like? And there's a lot of great researchers working on that right now. And I'm really excited to see where that goes um, in terms of like eating disorder recovery, but then even with like, you know, obesity or larger bodies, like how can we get away from the BMI with that too? Like Mm -hmm. that's another interesting, interesting conversation to have. And just what is, how can we get just like the scientific community and to recognize that someone can be, can be actually healthy in a larger body when they have a higher BMI. Um, and what does that, what does that look like? How do we define that? And I, I don't, I certainly don't know, but I, I think that it can exist. I, I've worked a lot with clients in larger bodies and I mean, I can't tell you how distressing the number on the scale is just for them. And I mean, I've worked with um, I've actually probably done most of my clinical work with people with eating disorders this past year with people with larger bodies. And so I think that's why I've gotten really interested in just kind of this overlap um, because the more that I focus on a specific number with them, the more triggered they get. And um, even when, you know, weight loss actually is really can be important for them because there's a uh, are a lot of other medical concerns that they really like, I'm thinking really extreme cases. And I don't think this is the case for anyone. Like we, you know, at some points they do need to lose weight, but that's not the first goal. That can't be the first goal because their mind is so tight. You know, I'm thinking of one patient I had specifically who her mind was so tied up in this number and her self-worth was tied to that number. And it was just like, we, you know, weight loss, is a goal at some point, but it's not the first goal. The first goal is really to normalize her thoughts and feelings and behaviors around food. And unfortunately it's going to take a while, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. um, there's just so many, you know, negative emotions surrounding that. And it's, it's so complicated. And yeah. And though for anorexia um, recovery, we have to put weight gain first and deal with the mental stuff later. So in a way it is the inverse relationship. It's the inverse thing on each side, you know, anorexia recovery, you have to gain weight first and then we can worry, start talking about like mental processes as you get into Mm -hmm. a healthy weight range. And with obesity, it's like, we have to deal with the mental processes first and then see what happens with the, with the, you know, with the way it goes yeah mm-hmm. really really Definitely. fascinating and yeah it make, makes more and more sense though when you, when you see the genetic 
research coming out that's mm-hmm. showing that these illnesses are sort of the same genes firing different directions. Exactly. I know it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I think it, it goes to show that there is some relation there. And I think that we, the obesity and eating disorders can't need to come together. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to work side by side uh, instead of opposing mm-hmm. opposite ends. It just sometimes seems that it's never, it's like, how do we shift this? It feels like it's just mm-hmm. so uh, rigid. That, and yeah. from everything to, you sort of even in order to have an idea about treatment, you have to be some doctor that's been trained in a specific type of treatment that's probably right. different. You know, it's just like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. It, it takes a while to progress because, yeah, like you said, you have to be trained in something and then recognize a flaw and then try something new and then publish research on it and then go on and do presentations and train other individuals on it. So it takes a while, um, yeah. unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. And what doesn't happen is that people who have been through it, the patients, we're, we're not able to publish papers and say, these are the flaws and this is a better idea. Right. We, you know, right. We, we can't do that because we're not doctors. But sometimes right. I, some people who... I know plenty of people that have been in eating disorder recovery treatment for 20 or 30 years. And believe me, they know more about eating disorders and the different styles yeah. of treatment from the inside and just are so educated in the area and mm-hmm. have great ideas about how to make it better and how to change it. Right. Right. Well, and we need those people to come up and come out and talk and let us know as researchers and clinicians, like what we can do better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that there's been, some studies like qualitatively looking at experiences of people through treatment. But I think that is really lacking in our field um, as well. Unfortunately, a lot of times qualitative work, qualitative research, you know, is, is um, a lengthy process and sometimes also not, not seen as rigorous as quantitative Mm -hmm. research, which Mm -hmm. can be a problem. But I think it's also really important for, um, you know, people who have had eating disorders and been in and out of treatment a lot of times, I think it is, I think their viewpoints are really important and to the field and um, to give us insight about where we can go in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, 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 what is interesting to me though, is that, so what we're talking about of sort of being how the model's set up and it's, it's very difficult to move outside of that, but then some of the, what are considered traditional treatments are not evidence-based treatments at all they're just traditional treatments but right right we're never they they didn't earn that space it was just sort of that got in there first I'm talking about psychoanalysis predominantly you know kind of got in there first and then it was just Mm -hmm. taken for granted and despite Mm -hmm. the fact that there still isn't any evidence that like you know psychodynamic therapy can help a person with anorexia put on weight um it's still get used or it's maybe still right. sometimes gone to as a default. Um, right. Well, I think, I think that's another problem in terms of um, some, some, you know, clinicians are just, are not trained in treating eating disorders. And, um, and I think that's also a big problem in our field is that, you know, there's definitely been some studies looking at like how many um, clinicians do actually use like evidence-based treatment for eating disorders, which you know, there's not, you know, CBT is the gold standard, gold standard. Um, but there's still, you know, especially for anorexia, there's, it's, 
it's still not, you know, completely effective in, mm-hmm. on all individuals, mm-hmm. but still seen as, you know, the most, most effective. And then, you know, FBT for adolescents and teens, mm-hmm. but still, you know, you have so many clinicians out there that are not using those treatment modalities when they are treating patients with eating disorders. And I think that's also really upsetting, even if they have, you know, a, a master's or a PhD or whatever, but, um, you know, would hope obviously that they're using evidence-based practices, but I think the realistically, um, a lot of them aren't. Yeah. And not much, um, not many checks and measures either. I, I, I hear a lot of bait and switch stories from people mm-hmm. who say, Oh, this person advertised that they did FBT for eating disorders and then shut the door and that wouldn't talk to the parent once they sort of started. Right. And that, I hear that quite often from parents and it's upsetting. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it regulated? <laughs> Why? Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if we could find out a better way to regulate therapy, I think that would be a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So what are you working, you know, what's coming up for you? What are you working on next? Um, if, if it's top so, secret, you don't have to tell us. <laughs> no, no, I'd love to tell you. Um, so I am collecting more data on currently on um, like fitness tracking and calorie tracking. Um, I actually think I have about a little over 500 participants that have participated in my study right now and still trying to collect a little bit more um, this summer, but trying to get more at, so like I said, the paper that I published was very, very preliminary, a simple yes or no question. So I developed a more in-depth questionnaire this past fall with my lab, looking at kind of current use, past use, why people stopped using, um, you know, why they are using, how long they've been using, um, lots of things like that. And so I'm gathering data on that now, which um, is exciting. My, my biggest thing that I'm working on right now actually is my dissertation that um, I'm pretty excited about. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to develop some type of um, intervention that prevents kind of eating disorders and obesity are just like the, really the whole spectrum of disordered eating behaviors um, at once. So I'm taking um, some I'm, I'm using some um, prevention programs that have been, that have demonstrated um, to be effective in previous interventions and so, or previously in previous labs. And so I'm actually combining two um, interventions and modifying them a bit. Part of what I did is a lot of the preventions that we have really focus on the westernized than ideal. And I think that um, that definitely contributes to eating disorders, but I think there's also, um, some limits to how that relates to women of ethnic and racial minorities. And so I conducted some focus groups this past semester to really explore how women of um, other ethnic and racial backgrounds, um, the pressures that they feel to look, the the different beauty ideals that they feel um, they are supposed to strive for. So I gathered a bunch of data on that and I'm incorporating what I got from the focus groups then to kind of modify the interventions to make them more applicable to a a broader um, range of young adult women. And then I'm also adding in some um, modules on um, skills, on dialectical behavioral skills training, specifically focus on like focusing on emotion regulation and distress tolerance to kind of help target those negative, that negative affect that's often associated with um, disordered eating. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of my big project that I'm working on right now. I'm developing the manual 
as we speak um, and hopefully going to implement that in a small pilot feasibility trial this, this fall. Thank you very much to Courtney Simpson for coming on and talking to me on today's podcast. The more I talk to people in the field of um, eating disorders, the more I realize that although sometimes treatment is misguided, that it's just that. It's just that it's misguided and people don't really know what else to do because they've been brought up by being told in school, medical school or whatever, to think a certain way or adopt certain principles. And it's not that they're trying to be unhelpful, it's that they really don't know any other way. And I think it's quite exciting how through technology more than anything, those of us who would not normally have had any sort of voice in the field, any field like this actually, which is a medical field, actually do have a voice. And we can say things like, that doesn't work, or that wasn't helpful or this is what I need. And we can say it with the power of a group saying it and really that groundswell of coming up and saying, this is what we need. And while it might be frustrating, and it really is incredibly frustrating actually a lot of the time when we see change so slow to happen and we feel like screaming at people for like, can't you see that this is the problem? It's so obvious to some of us. and. I've been through this and this is what worked and didn't work. And it can feel incredibly frustrating. But I mean, frankly, if you think about what's changed in eating disorder treatment, even in the last couple of years, it's incredible. And the science is incredible as well. And I'm very excited for the future of this field because I think that more and more we're going to move away from the things that don't work and we're going to stop having to keep doing them just because that's what we've always done before and we're going to be able to move forward and start exploring things and seeing what actually works for individuals in treatment rather than these lofty blanket concepts that we apply to groups of people and expect them to respond in a certain way and do a certain thing and live happily ever after. So yeah, I think in that conversation, we sort of got into that and I was really, really enjoyed talking to Courtney and I'm excited to see what else she does in this field. And um, if you have any thoughts or ideas on any of this, then please reach out to me. You can get hold of me via uh, Twitter and the handle, my handle is at love underscore fat underscore, or you can email me at info at If there is an area of eating disorder treatment or research that you are interested in and would like me to explore by getting somebody on the phone and talking to them and getting a podcast out of it, then that's what I'm here for. That's what I like to do. So please do reach out. Um, Also, if you enjoy these podcasts, we do have a patron account. I will link to that in the show notes. It just helps us keep going. Thank you. I really appreciate anything that you can give. And also you can give us a five-star review in the iTunes store. That was really appreciated as well. And it helps other people find the podcast and they might learn and they might be able to get help or just think out the little box a little bit when they hear other people's stories. So that's appreciated as well. Thank you for listening. And until next time, cheers and cheerio.